From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. Today I'm speaking with Sheila Hetty, author most recently of the novel Pure Color, as well as How Should a Person Be and Motherhood, among others. Pure Color revolves around the premise that the world we're living in now is simply God's first draft, with lots of things to be improved upon. Sheila's protagonist, Mira, is an art critic and struggles with how to love a woman named Annie while reckoning with her father's death. You'll hear a lot of talk about bears, birds, and fish in this episode. And after listening, I think you might get a sense of which one you are. Sheila is a really big deal and writes a lot about being an artist and the simple act of being alive. When we spoke for this episode, Sheila was stuck in her Toronto apartment without any heat, wrapped in a blanket, sipping hot tea with her loyal dog Feldman snoring beside her. It was a very cozy conversation and I hope you enjoy it. I started reading the diaries that you have serialized on the New York Times and I kind of wanted to start there because, A, could you tell us a little bit about the process of writing diaries for so many years and then what you learned about yourself in reflecting back on them? Oh, my dog just got up on the bed. Okay. What's his name? Feldman. Feldman a big guy. What did I learn? You know, I've been working on this project on and off for the last 10 years. The main thing that I noticed actually, you know, I was trying to sort of hide the identities of people and make composite characters. And I realized how very easy it was to do because it occurred to me that there are people in, you know, like, let's say you have like seven female friends and maybe like 10 exes. It seemed to me like there were archetypes or character types within each gender that I was drawn to. So that it was very easy to say like, no, there aren't, there weren't 10 men in the past. There were like three archetypes and those 10 people fit into them. Or, you know, you have your, you know, in, in your friends, you have, oh, here are my advice giving friends. And, and here are my, you know, friends who I have adventures with. And I, I just kind of realized the degree to which I'm drawn to specific types and characters and that we probably all are we all have these sort of broad characteristics or these specific kinds of ways of being in relation to other people and that those ways are limited and different people can fit into those roles so it was less that I learned so much about myself than learning about who I'm drawn to I feel that feeds directly into these archetypal groups of people in your novel. And we open with God creating the world, which I loved so much. I really started, you know, from there and I thought, what is she doing this time? Wow. And I was so drawn into it. Can you share the role of God in your novel and what he's doing as we begin the story? I mean, I say that God's like a painter who has stepped back from the canvas to look at what he's created. And that's the moment that we're living in is the moment of God standing back. So it's this moment of judging what he's made and trying to 
understand what about what he's made is good and what about what he's made is not good and and how things might be changed or improved when he you know steps back to to complete the the work of making this world it seems such a wonderful idea to imagine ourselves just in the first draft as soon as i read that i kind of sighed and thought oh that's all this mess is the first draft <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it made sense to me. I mean, as a proposition, as like, well, why is the world the way it is? Why does it have so much beauty in it? And at the same time, so much suffering and so much that's just incredible and majestic. And at the same time, so much that's so painful and wrong. And it struck me that maybe this is one way of understanding that, that complexity and our disappointment with life and at the same time our gratitude i just wanted to have a different relationship to the complexity of all that there's a line in the book that relates to what you're saying and it's also that us humans try to create our second drafts a better version of this life through art through the books we write and not idealizing things but that art is a way to try and create a different type of existence from our imaginations. Yeah, I think we experience the world. And I, I think, you know, when we make models of it in literature or in film or whatever, we're not trying to make models of a world that would be perfect, but they are sort of filtered by our understanding and our desire to make something that feels whole. And I think in that desire to make a work of art and to make something, a model of the universe or the world or life that feels whole, you know, we leave out certain things and we exaggerate others. And so they are, it is kind of a second draft of this first draft of life. I want people to understand just the basic beginning of the book, and then we won't give anything away. In your book, there are three types of animals which relate to the types of people or the way certain people relate to one another in the book. So could you explain who the birds are, who the fish are, and who the bears are? And we'll go from there, because I think I know which one I am. Um, so I'd be <laughs> interested to, to talk further. Yeah, so the idea is that God created these three eggs, the bird egg and the fish egg and the bear egg. And these, and the people come from one of these three eggs and, and they come into the world or we come into the world in this draft as critics of this creation. You know, God sort of wants us here in order to pick up on all the things that are not right with this creation. And, and in our perceiving them, that's, that's a way of communicating them to God. And so the birds um, look at the world aesthetically and in terms of beauty and harmony. The people born from the fish egg think about the conditions of the many, the structures, and the people born from the bear egg are oriented towards their family or a few very special people. And so they're they're looking at the world and, and critiquing it in terms of its intimacies and and how those go in this in this draft when in the writing of the novel did these three animals come to you and why pick these three types of animals to represent these different aspects of kind of the human quality that was one of the earliest 
things I did was um, think about who the three art critics might be or who the three critics might be. And I've been thinking about that question for a number of years because I had this idea of God being three art critics in the sky when I was writing How Should a Person Be? And I didn't quite understand what that sentence meant. God is three art critics in the sky, but it was something that kind of compelled me. And I, every couple of years, I would try to do a bit of writing around that. And I guess finally in 2018, I was able to sit down and really think about it. And I don't know, those just, those animals seemed like the right ones to pick because it just felt right for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I kind of describe it in the book, but the characteristics of the bear, in in my mind, this sort of warm creature, this creature that's sort of closest to us, so perhaps has the value of family, you know? And then obviously the fish, I mean, there's, I mean, it just seemed obvious. Those just seemed like the right ones. Well, thinking about the idea of a critic, because I think so many of us don't really understand what the role of a critic is in our world and in our society. What does that role mean to you right now in our culture versus, say, how it might have been perceived in the past? Well, I'm very interested in criticism and I'm interested in this world in which everyone can express their criticisms and be heard. I think that's really exciting and it's painful, but it's also kind of thrilling and provokes a lot of change and is very useful, again, even though it can be very painful. And so I... I'm in favor of criticism. I think that it's part of, it's like a necessary part of progress. You need criticism. And I think that, you know, we live in a world where all the criticism is just sort of put down as negativity and it's not taken seriously and everything that goes on on Twitter gets a lot of condemnation. And I don't think, I don't really agree with that perspective and I don't think it's the most interesting way of looking at those kind of conversations that are happening online. And so I wanted to think, well, what's the what's the most important thing a critic could do? Like what could be the most important use of our instinct to criticize? Uh, you know, it's not just bored with social media. We're, we're, we're a very complaining kind of species, I think, you know. So yeah, the idea that we are put here to criticize God's creation so that the next draft could be better. The idea that we're not meant to enjoy this or we can enjoy it, but we're not only meant to enjoy it. That just seemed like the, the broadest possible answer I could come to. Why do we criticize? Why does it seem like we can't really fully appreciate life and can't just revel in its the beauty of being a creature that has consciousness and that can experience this world, you know, what's going on? So, so that's why I came up with this architecture. Sheila, you could start your own religion <laughs> with these ideas. It feels comforting and it feels like it helps explain why certain people are the way they are. There are a couple of very important relationships in the book, but particularly one that Mira, our protagonist, has with a woman called Annie. And Annie is a fish and, and Mira's a, a bird. But what did that symbolize for you? I don't know. I think as as a bird myself, there's a feeling of well, the work that you're doing as a bird is not as important that uh, uh, it's not as important as the work that the fish are doing. And you know, the fish are concerned with everybody and their conditions and their 
and fairness and all these very deeply important things. And you know that they're important as a brewer, but you can't quite bring yourself to care as much. You care about other things more, literature and art, and it, it seems trivial in comparison. And I, I wanted to create a world in which well, no, they're all important. It's important that all of these tasks are taken care of. It's important that art is taken care of. It's important that politics is taken care of. It's important that the family is taken care of. And we don't all have to take care of all of it. And, um, you know, I think especially writing this book at the tail end of the Trump years, there was a lot of talk from American artists I knew about, well, that the work that they're doing is not important and what they should be doing is political. And I really disagree agreed with that. I just felt like art is always important. And, you know, there's a kind of shame often about being somebody who's making art in a time of political unrest or difficulty. But I, I really believe that there's no time that art should not be made. So I wanted to sort of get across this. And, and you know, like the, the Mira and Annie and Mira's father, who's a bear, like that there's an in there I want to show like an interconnection between all three of them how they all together make the world and it's not exactly a satisfying world because they don't understand each other because they're from a different eggs and they have different priorities and different things in the world are important to them and, and they'll never understand each other but they kind of want each other you know there's no relationships in the book that are between members of the same species because I think we are attracted to each other in, in our differences. Well, I think too in romantic relationships, everything changes all the time. And anything we think is solid in a moment can shape shift on us kind of for better or worse. And so I wonder, people will think we're, we sound so strange talking about out like, who's a bear and who's this, <laughs> I but I kind of love it as well. But I feel like I'm a potentially a, a probably a bear who wishes she was more like a fish and loves friends who are like fish to care about the greater good and appreciates the birds, loves reading their work and trying to understand them more, but doesn't really have the patience to sit down and create herself. But would love to just love, but that that is also elusive because you cannot rely on someone else to just love you the same way. You know, that's always moving. But I'm connecting this because I felt the relationship that Mira has with her father, who's a bear, has influenced the way she can then interact. Like I felt like having a you know, an intensity of a relationship with a parent, which I definitely related to, that push and pull of needing oxygen and yet a kind of a guilt that comes along with being loved so much but also loving so much back and trying to work out what that boundary is and how to live as an adult. Does the bear and the bird symbolize the truth of your father and your relationship was he a bear too I think so yeah I think so I mean it's you know it's funny when you put people into categories because the complexity of a human can't really be reduced to an archetype like one of these three categories but yeah I would say so how did you end up kind of gathering the work in the novel form well, no, I was trying to write a novel all this time, and 
some of the passages I thought they were just going to be for myself ended up in the book, but I think that's the case with all my books. Like I, I'm always, when I say I'm always writing, I don't mean I'm always writing in the sense of I wake up every day and I sit down and I write and then I write for three hours and I stop. Like I, I just happen to like writing and I end up accumulating a lot of material and I don't quite know when or how because I never really feel like I'm doing work. Um, the work really comes when I'm trying to pull everything together and sort of make everything make sense together. That's when it starts to feel like a little bit more like intellectual labor. But no, I was trying to write a novel and I was, you know, trying to figure out a story and, and where everything fit and, you know, where would a story like this end and, and, you know, what's supposed to happen in the third act of a story like this. The way I started was with three very different characters. There was sort of a mirror character, but there was two men who don't really appear in the book anymore. And it was between the three of them. So it, it went through a lot of revision. It's changed a lot since the beginning. Well, thinking about art critics, how did you learn to become one? In the book, Mira goes to a school. And I kind of laughed. I just imagined, oh, that's like art school. How fun. And I think I'm still mystified almost the track that a cultural critic has in our world today. For you, how did that begin? Well, I, I, I wrote reviews of art shows for a weekly in Toronto um, in my early 20s. And I was reviewing books at that time too. And so I've always done some of that, but I don't consider myself really a critic. I don't think I really have that disposition because I think a real critic also says when things are bad. And I don't like doing that. I really like writing about things that I love and that I want more people to know about and love. So I'm more of a, yeah, I don't really consider myself a real critic. I mean, I have friends who are real critics and they, they almost are more activated when it's something that they don't like. And I think that's right. I think that's the right position for a critic. And I'm not like that at all. I feel too much sympathy for the person that made it. I just don't want to hurt their feelings. Like I just can't, I don't have that personality. The role of the critic is is important, but it's also brutal, isn't it? Yeah, it's brutal, but it's so important. And but for myself, like I I have those feelings. Like I hate books, and I I'll talk to my friends about how much I hate certain books. And I and I don't feel sympathy for the person that wrote a bad book in that sense when I'm reading it, and I hate it. But I just I don't feel like I want to go all the way and and write that down and make an argument for it, even if I will do that in private. But I admire that. I think it takes a lot of courage and I think it takes a lot of certainty. And I'm also just like not, people often want me to read their writing and give them feedback. And I, that's also something that I can't do because to me, if I read a person's writing, I just think, well, this is it. It's hard for me to see how it could be any different. Like I'll read their chapter and I'll be like, well, it is its own creature. I don't feel like that's my role in the world is to come in and say how things can be better. I don't know how they can be better. I just don't know. I think some people can say, well, oh, the problem with this is that the the characters, I mean, I just don't look at art very mechanically. I think you have to look at it very mechanically in order to to write criticism or to give really helpful feedback. There's a beautiful part in the book where you describe how we can be transported or suspended within 
a writer's soul for a moment as we're engaging in their work, you know, someone from 200 years ago or even beyond, and that that's such a precious, intimate moment. Who are those people for you? Well, I love Aristotle's poetics. I, I feel like I learned a lot about how to write when I, I read that book. And I've just been reading Vasari's The Life of the Artist or The Lives of the Artist, which is has so many incredible anecdotes about art and artists and more contemporary, the critic Dave Hickey, who died this year or last year, I think he's really right about art and what art is and what it's not. And then I have friends, you know, Lauren Euler and Christian Lorenzen and, and various different sort of working book critics who seem to me to have a lot of courage and, and very particular taste and yeah, I love re- I love reading criticism, and then there's those great, you know, like Clement Greenberg and and so many great art critics from the mid twentieth century America. I love reading criticism. I love reading pans. I love reading big negative book reviews. Well, I don't know if it's a theme in the book, but it's something that resonated with me, probably as a woman in her forties. Like our generation, we remember the time before social media and something I loved about how you described the friendships that Mira has when she's at that critic school as a young person is that her friendships weren't show-offy. A, I just love that word. But how do you feel about that time in your own life as an artist developing, being able to have what I look back on now as almost like a cocoon that I don't think younger artists now have yeah, I mean, we weren't, you weren't 17 and looking for an audience. Maybe you had a zine or something like that, but there just would have been no chance. I don't know. I miss how badly we all dressed. Like, there was just so much we were so innocent about and so unconscious of. You know, you'd see a photograph of yourself two weeks after it was taken, and there was a kind of innocence to that, which I don't think we were even conscious of at the time because obviously we didn't know it was going to end and we had nothing to compare it to and so on. But yeah, I don't miss that time at all, but I I feel like it was it's interesting to have experienced that world and then the end of that world, you know? And then this world, which it, to me is not a very it's I don't feel very comfortable engaging in it in the way that I think somebody who grew up with it would feel. I I feel so self-conscious, you know, it's it's like a different atmosphere and I can't quite breathe properly in it. And I would like to be able to because it's the contemporary moment and you sort of want to be in the present with everybody where everybody is. But I suppose not everybody's there, but I don't know. Yeah, I just can't, I can't get over my self-consciousness or my awareness of all the motivations that I have for, you know, for instance, those times that I've been on Twitter for posting something. I, I can't do it reflexively. I always think, well, you're just looking for attention. And when you know that, it's just hard to do it. It's it's hard to do it in an effortless and fun way. So I've gone on and off, and I've just ended up just staying off. I'll, I'll never feel comfortable in that atmosphere. It's interesting how even though you only partly engage in that world, but you know, are still obviously very aware of it, that you still capture it in your book very well. Yeah, I've been very interested in it, you know, and I, I look at it and I, I'm excited by it. And I think it's, you know, I'm curious about how it's going to evolve. And like, clearly, it's at a very rudimentary stage. It's not also the world that I want to live in, you know, it doesn't make me feel good. 
There's one part that I loved because Mira, the character, is saying, you know, what's more important, websites or the sky? If I look at where I spend my time, it's websites. It was just such a bigger idea where we put our time and attention is who we are. And what we value. Like, wouldn't it be a shame to spend all your lifetime on websites when the sky was there? But it would also be totally crazy to spend all your time looking at the sky. Like, I don't think that it's better, you know, to spend your time necessarily looking at the sky. But, you know, she's really asking herself, like, what what means something to me? And, and she realizes it is websites. And I, I sort of feel like, I, I don't know, I don't want to be sentimental about maybe the sky isn't that important. I don't know. It's a real question. Like, maybe it really is important to look at your phone. Like, I don't know how or why, but maybe it is important to spend that much time. Like maybe the next version of humans, like a hundred years in the future is going to be, I mean, I think it probably will mostly be living in a virtual world. So in some sense, I do think we're learning how to do that and we're shaping environments that we're going to be in more and spend more and more time in and, that will make the human being into something different. And so I think we're not only in relationship to humans of the past, but humans of the future. And that's the confusing part for me. And that's why I feel bad about not being online, because I do think that's the direction that everything is going. And you just don't want to really start not understanding the world. No, it's so good to be called out on that nostalgic aspect, because it's also something that feeds a lot of negative things in the world, wanting to go back to the way things were. But also that relates to a part, Mira, in the book, when she's getting older. What happens when you're not young, bright things creating the moment, you know, the cool stuff, the what, the cutting edge? I don't know whether it's kind of biological or something that happens when you do step back and you can watch and learn, but you you cannot reassert yourself inside of it and just to share one thing I went to a a nightclub but I was so much older you know when you are so aware of being from another generation and it was so incredible to see a how everyone was dressed like how it was such a moment of expression but how the capturing it online you know with TikTok dances But I did have a moment of feeling like I was hovering above everyone else. Like I couldn't really be present in it. You know those older people who take the drugs and like, I don't know, wear the toga or whatever it is, like to kind of (laughs) insert themselves inside of that moment. And everyone's like a bit weirded out by it. And there's also nothing wrong with that. But I understood that part in your book very much. So what is the role of someone who's experienced a lot, but is now not looking back, but looking at the current moment with a lot of experience. Yeah, I don't know. I think I feel that too, that separation from the the current of culture, that it's not for me and it's not by me or my peers. And 
I don't know, is it a preparation for death? Like you're just not part of the culture and eventually you won't be part of the world. Like there's some way in which you just sort of have to, there's nothing to do about it. And I think you're right. There's something kind of ridiculous in trying to reassert yourself in a, in a place that you don't belong. And it's, yeah, you, it's ridiculous. And no, everyone knows you don't belong there. And there's no wisdom in it. I don't want to say this for everybody because maybe there's some people that do belong. I'm sure there are. You know, I just don't feel like, I don't feel like I do. And you don't. And that's what I wanted to explore. Like, what does it feel like no longer t to belong to culture? It's almost like life is a circle. And for so long, death is so far from everyone's mind. And then we become aware of our own mortality through aging. And it's almost... I mean, I'm just having this moment where I'm like, huh, like, they said it might be like this in the books, you know, <laughs> and now I'm there. I'm like, oh, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. I think that, I don't know, I remember being that age, 18 or whatever, and feeling that power in me. And it was the power of like, it was kind of like the power of absolute contempt, you know, and contempt for anybody much older and feeling like they were on the periphery and I was in the center, you know, and I, I don't want to go back to that. Certainly not, but there is something about it that was so incredible to feel like nobody else exists except for me and my friends. And you can't, I'm sure an 18 year old today doesn't feel that because you have so much evidence of so many other lives online. And so I actually do wonder what it's like, like, what is it like to be 18 now? Like everyone talks about the, their narcissism, but in some way, Maybe we were more narcissistic because we didn't see any other friend groups. We didn't see any other ways and lives except for those that, that literally we walked into. As I was reading your book, weirdly, I was very, I was thinking about this TV show that I watched, which definitely speaks to my nostalgia of, of things or interests, you know, the land and birds, you know, animals, <laughs> you know, but it's called Edwardian Farm. So it's a British show okay. about three, you know, two archaeologists and a sociologist who go and live the way they lived then, three people. So it's a reality show, but it's very tame and all about bringing the expert who's dressed up in, you know, the cap and pantaloon versions. But there is this moment in it where the first tractor comes to the village. You know, they're like traveling salesmen. And you have a moment where you're so aware. I felt like a human from the future watching this going, wow, they do not know what is to come. Like their whole way of life is about to change. And something about that's been so poignant. And I keep relating it to now of going like, what's that thing going to be for us? Like it's definitely connected to technology but that thing of like, oh, they didn't know anything about what was to come. I'm just fascinated by that question. I mean, yeah, I have all sorts of speculations. Identity might be something that disappears. Just the fact that people are choosing their own pronouns and then like online you can be anyone and, you know, even like Facetune. And I just think that our, our attachment to our, you know, biological sex and even the way that we look and possibly even our personalities, our characters, I mean, we're not going to be so, I think we're not going to be so anchored to all those 
accidents of birth, maybe. I don't mean class, I, but I just mean like physical attributes and so on. My boyfriend has this Oculus, that virtual reality headset, and I tried it and I went into a poker room and I couldn't believe how all my social anxiety that I would have in real life was instantly activated in this poker room. And, and somebody like threw me a cigarette across the table and I couldn't light it because I've never been in this virtual world before. And I felt so ashamed, like, oh, I can't, I can't reciprocate this gesture by lighting it. And I felt as human, if not more human in that world, that virtual world, than in this world, it was just one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had. Why should I care? These are not even, they're cartoons. And I don't even know who those cartoons are connected to. And I cared so much about fitting in around this poker table. And I, I just took the headset off after like two minutes or a couple of minutes. I was just like, I can't bear it. It was just too awkward. I had the, an experience similar with an Oculus or in a virtual world. It was like the world that I was within was in space and I had a feeling of such vastness. I could feel an opening in my chest, like this wonder. And I was in a small room. I think it's just the, the power that it has over, you know, our physical body. I don't know whether that's good, bad or otherwise, but there's so much we don't know about yet. <laughs> But I know we don't have long, so I want to ask, <laughs> segue now. This, seem, this seems like such a dorky, stupid question now after really talking about things. But I do want to know what lights you up. Well, there's so many ways I could answer this question. I mean, the thing that I kind of can't help myself saying is like, I really like going to bed at the end of the day. <laughs> I really love going to sleep. I just love the end of the day. I love when the day is done and I can crawl under the covers and I know I'm going to like be in a dream soon. I love dreaming. I think that's really a very happy moment in the day for me. But do you have a particular way of recording your dreams? No, I mean, I used to write them down, but I don't anymore. But I just like that moment of being in them because I don't really remember them for even very long. But I really just like the, I mean, this connects to our virtual world conversation. It's interesting to be in other worlds. And it's the same thing, like as a virtual world and the dream world and literature, you know, it's all these ways of sort of transporting yourself. And I love that. This friend of mine, if I can say, he, he's been writing down the landscape of his dreams for years. And he realized that it's as much a limited specific world as this real world so there's there's not it's not like there's an infinite number of landscapes in one's dreams there's a limited number of landscapes and that's really interesting to me like that there are only 12 houses or six you know exteriors or whatever that seems really strange yeah maybe our minds only have enough space for certain images I mean it'd be so funny if they were like critters up there deciding like delete <laughs> this one delete this you know like cleaning your inbox of your mind right. and people or interactions and going I don't think we'll need this one back 
Shall we get rid of it? Okay. Like, I love that. You come over, have someone clean, ha- you know, clean house for you. Something that's that Liam's pointing out is that we think something lovely has happened, and that is, is your dog snoring softly? Yes. He... He's always beside me. And, you know, if I do a photo shoot, if I do an interview, he's always right beside me. He's my 130-pound Rottweiler. And when I do interviews, he falls asleep and snores. And I can always just – it really does make me slightly self-conscious about my answers to have this, like, snoring creature beside me. The sweet dog. It's lovely. It might be that it's his favorite moment as well to fall asleep next to you. That sounds so so wonderful and comforting, doesn't it? It's so nice. Maybe he does like this, like, gentle talking out loud right beside him, I don't know. Where he only hears half of the conversation because the other half is in my ears. Oh, that's right. In my headphones. I wonder what he's dreaming about then. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Sheila, I think it's time. I have to let you go. Thank you so much for chatting. I'm so happy to see you again. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Sheila and her snoring dog, Feldman. Sheila's book, Pure Color, is available now and you can purchase it via the link on our website, lituppodcast.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Lurker Liam Billiam. This week's episode was edited by Trevor Wallace. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. In two weeks, I'll be speaking to Jason Diamond. Be sure to tune in.